Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Brandel Chambly podcast with Jaime Diaz. Uh, Today, we're going to talk a little bit about the great news that uh, the PGA Tour and all the organizations in golf have sort of come together and come up with some kind of schedule that perhaps will work in spite of all these incredibly difficult hurdles that the coronavirus has, has set before us. And Brandel, one of the things that happened was the Masters has established a new date in early November, which is unique. It's never been played then. It's going to be totally different, certainly in terms of climate, in terms of the look of the course. But I wonder, inspirationally, if it'll have even more impact. Just wondering your reactions to the Masters movement to November this year. Well, first of all, I don't envy those whose job it was to reschedule the various, uh, well, golf events, sporting events around the globe. When you think about the myriad considerations, uh, not least which the uh, continued spread of infection of COVID, its lethality, whether it's going to abate, and then well down the list, uh, the broadcast partners' commitments to other sports. And then as it relates to golf, you're talking about uh, climate, uh, agronomy, uh, hours of daylight, uh, how many players you can get on a golf course uh, later in the year, whether or not to use two golf courses or one. You go on down the list and you think, this is beyond somebody's computational power to figure out. But nonetheless, they did. And it's great because I think all of us are looking for any sort of good news. I mean, this is a slow-moving disaster. And every day we wake up to bad news, nothing but bad news. And I think the idea that somebody's optimistic enough to plan late summer, uh, fall sporting events is enough to give all of us a little hope that there might be some lessening uh, to this slow-moving nightmare. So uh, I was certainly encouraged by the plans. Beyond that, you know, when you start to think about the Masters being played in November, uh, you think, is there another golf course or another tournament anywhere in the world where the people who run it are more capable of creating the playing conditions that they need? Uh, you think about sub-air, the heating and cooling systems, and they can create the ideal growing conditions, um, irrespective of the weather almost. So I have no doubt that it'll be just as beautiful as it is in April. And perhaps uh, it will provide, as I said yesterday, sort of a, a glorious end to this otherwise inglorious year of major championships. Yes. And uh, you had mentioned also that it gives Tiger Woods perhaps another chance to really be ready, which he certainly wasn't in April. Uh, yeah. And perhaps uh, in November, he'll be uh, restored physically yeah, the unintended consequences of, of it. You're right. Is, uh, you know, Tiger, you know, April was closing in fast on a man who was uh, struggling with some injuries. So uh, the odds are that, you know, when the major championship season starts up again in uh, late August, uh, cross our fingers, uh, Tiger Woods will have more time to heal. And by the time the Masters comes around, good chance uh, he'll be ready to go. Whereas I'm not sure that he'd have been ready to go physically for – uh, a successful defense of his 2019 Masters victory. And I'm certainly not an agronomist, but as I understand it, the overseed does take a while to really establish itself, uh, at the, which, you know, Augusta would certainly have done in September, or early no, October. But to give it a month uh, to kind of grow in probably helps 
the fairway condition. And uh, as you said, they have so much autonomy as far as creating, you know, ideal growing conditions, but nature still has to take its course and this will probably help. Uh, I, I, I'll bet you, you know, they, you know, I think the masters as much as anything, it's, it's, uh, a spectacle of agronomy as much as it is of athleticism and traditions. Uh, the superstars in the uh, agronomy world descend upon that place and, and give their opinions, lend their expertise, and, and the splendor of the place is right there for all of us to enjoy. So I'm sure there was uh, a lot of calculus involved in, in picking this date, and no doubt the date they've chosen will give them the exact amount of time they need to bring this golf course not only to its aesthetic splendor, but also to the playability that uh, they think is necessary for a, a major championship. All right, let's move on now uh, and talk about something that you don't hear a lot about. There's so many masters lists and so many things we talk about anecdotally about the masters in terms of its history, but the best individual rounds, certainly we've talked about the best individual tournaments and the best individual shots, but the best individual rounds and Randall, I, I, I was not shocked, but I was still, uh, very impressed that you looked at literally every round that's been played at the Masters. Yeah, it was fun to rank all these. I did not do that, but I, let me just start it off with yeah. one that I always felt was iconic and um, maybe doesn't get enough credit because Gary Player, in general, I think is somewhat overlooked uh, as a player who certainly won nine majors and tied Ben Hogan, but because he was slightly overshadowed by Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer, uh, has always been in the underdog role as far as being one of the greatest all-time players. But at age 42, from seven strokes behind in the last round, he shot 64 past 12 players, made a 20-foot, 15-foot putt on 18 for birdie that just had to be made, and somehow pulled it out, as he had done many times in his career in terms of doing something with grit and tenacity and just outlasting people. But this was a lot of brilliance. He birdied 2, 4, 9, 10, 12, 13, 15, 16 with an amazing putt and that great 15 footer. I could go on, but I just thought Gary, um, if there's one moment that I think set him apart as the greatest competitor in history, I think it's arguable that he was, it was that moment. So, but I'll let you have the floor here and, and give me some of those, I'm sure will be surprising to some, but also beautifully explicated reasons for why you think your rounds are the best. Well, I, I, you know, I have to agree with you that Gary players, uh, 64 was, you know, you say it's the greatest. I certainly would say it's one of the greatest rounds there, you know, birdie in the last hole and then seeing Seve Ballesteros, a young Seve Ballesteros run over and congratulating for making him the putt. And then you know, he won by one. And of course he, he dodged some bullets from uh, Hubert Green missing a putt, Rod Funces missing a putt, Tom Watson bogey the last hole. So there was a lot going on there, but just in terms of separating yourself from the rest of the field and then around that eventually leads to a victory, Gary Player was low by three in the final round in 1978, but the single greatest round, at least in my estimation, ever played at the ma- at the Masters came in the first round in 1941 by Craig Wood, who shot 66 and was low by five. I can't find any other round Masters history that was separated between that round and everybody else by a wider margin that also eventually led victory so it was Craig Wood at least in my view now look the year before in 1940 Lloyd Mangrum shot 64 day one and you think about this 
64 in 1940 with that equipment on that golf course, which by today's standards would be about 8,000 yards long, comparatively speaking. He was playing an 8,000-yard golf course, comparatively speaking, and he shot 64. And to try to put that in some perspective, it would be 25 years before anybody would match that round of golf. And it was Jack Nicklaus who did it in 1965. But it would be 46 years before anybody would break Break. that record. Of course, then we know it was Nick Price uh, who shot uh, 63 on Saturday, 62 and a half, as some people like to call it, because it lipped out. But, uh, you know, there are other rounds that that, that come to mind. Uh, you know, I, I would agree with you that Gary Player is certainly in the top five, at least in my view. Um, from a historical standpoint, the first play, person to ever break 70 at the Masters in the second round in 1934 was, and and, and, and why I think this is, is neat for different reasons. fellow his name was Ed Dudley. Mm-hmm. Now, Ed Dudley has the unique uh, perspective or the unique, I think, accomplishment of having more top tens and major championships than anybody in the history who never won one. He had yeah. 24 major championship uh, uh, top tens and never won. But he also went on to be the head pro, uh, the director of golf at Augusta National. So he was the first person to break 70 there. And then, of course, you know, from you know sentimental reasons and also because of how well he played uh, on that on that final day in 1986, you have Jack Nicklaus. But I would say the round that Jack shot in 1965 of 64, when he was low by two and then went on to win by nine, would eclipse at least in terms of the quality of the round, the one that he shot in the final round of 1986. But it is fun, or was fun at least, to go through every single round ever played and sort of compare it to uh, – to uh, you know, some of the other other great rounds, and try to at least in your your eye, try to get your arms around it. Another one I'll put up there again, just from sentimental reasons. This one, not necessarily from the arithmetic, but Ben Hogan shooting sixty six in the third round of nineteen sixty seven, which put him two back when he was in his middle fifties. Uh, you know, from a sentimental standpoint, was at least in my view, right up there with Jack Nicklaus shooting sixty five and. 86 and Gary player shooting 64 in 1978. Those are great. And, uh, I love that you went back and honored history actually, uh, (laughs) with Mangrum, especially that's forgotten. I mean, that record held for so long and, uh, and he was, you know, he was a special player in his own right who got overshadowed by Nelson and Hogan and Snead. I have to have a lot of time on my hands. Right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, one, one that I thought was kind of a Cinderella, or at least certainly, um, well, it's not obscure. It's got its own kind of urban legend. Was Anthony Kim making eleven birdies in yeah. two thousand nine? That was only his second round ever at the Masters. He's twenty three years old. He played with Rory and Rory Shikawa. Rory was awed by what he saw, and the thing is that uh, uh, he made he, he made two bogeys and a double as well, and, and shot sixty five. But Anthony Kim, as we know, uh, was really and you. Were you probably out there a little – were you out there in some tournaments that he played in ever? I'll tell you, the first time I ran across Anthony Kim was uh, when he was 11 years old. He was on the back of the range hitting golf balls at PGA West, and I was on the back of the range practicing myself. And I walked over and stood behind this kid. I uh, didn't really know who he was. I just heard the sound of his shots and saw how fast he was swinging the club. And after, I don't know, the 10th in a row that just never left the flag, he turned around and looked at me 
and said, who's going to beat me? <laughs> who's going to beat me? And yeah. I was like, well, certainly nobody that's 11 is going to beat you. I'm not sure I could have beaten him at the time I was on the PGA tour. And, you know, he <laughs> came out, um, and I think in his first or second event, finished second in the Texas open. Um, he was, uh, an unbelievable talent. Uh, yeah, back to the rounds, I'll, I'll tell you something else I found that was pretty darn interesting. At least it was interesting to me. Um, there's been 16 rounds of 64 uh, at the Masters. Of course, we know there's been two 63s, but there's been 16 rounds of 64 going back to Lloyd Mangrum shooting 64 there in 1940 all the way to last year. But what I thought was unbelievable really was more than – well, right at, I should say, one-fifth of those rounds of 64 came on Saturday of 2019. Three players shot 64. You think about that. There were 25 years before rounds of 64, from 1940 to 1965, and then another nine years, right? And then, you know, 79 to 88, there wasn't, but, you know, I mean, it took that long for somebody to shoot 64. But last year, on Saturday, Tony Finau shot 64, Webb Simpson shot 64, and Patrick Cantlay shot 64. So, you know, look, I, I, I argue with people all the time about the impact of equipment and whether or not they get, the ball should be rolled back. I always say I'm fine if it does. I think there's other ways to sort of ameliorate the problem. But you cannot deny the fact that uh, the scores that seemed unfathomable in this game's, well, past and fairly recent past are now becoming sort of the status quo. Well said. And um, yeah, that, I think that that is the alarm bell that, that you know, triggers reactions in one way or the other about the distance issue. And that's, that's something that's been put on hold, obviously, because of the crisis we're going through. But it, it'll probably be taken up again next year. I, did, I, I do like your, uh, your anecdotal evidence as, as far as separation. Uh, not just mathematically, but I think Jack's round in, in 1965 was probably his iconic round as far as establishing his superiority in terms of his distance and the whole package that he had that could actually dominate. And, and you know, obviously he, he won that tournament um, by nine shots. And it was easy, as he said. You know, he was hitting wedges and nine irons the whole day. It was a different level of golf. And, of course, it... Uh, it uh, was the reason Bobby Jones said what he said, you know, this is a game with which I am not familiar. Um, I also think Tiger had a round like that on Saturday in 1997 when he shot 65. As you know, you know better than anyone, his driving, driving distance advantage that week was almost unprecedented. It was like 25 yards over the next guy. And he was just showing all the skills along with the distance that day. And it, I think it just discouraged everyone and, almost ushered in a new era, even without the Sunday being played, which was quite amazing. Well, I agree. I mean, that was the most, at least in my view, the most seismic major championship in, in history. It, uh, you know, in one week, he transfigured the game for a number of different reasons, uh, one of which was the fact that he was, uh, in an unprecedented way, longer and straighter than anybody who had ever played the game. Well, and then Tiger had another crazy uh, round in – 2005, this the second round, between the second round and the third round, he made, he played, he was 16 under for 31 holes and made seven birdies in a row at one point, shot 66 um, the, uh, the second day because of the rain, they played the second and, and third day together a little bit. And then 65 when he finished off that, uh, 
that third round that included the seven straight birdies. That's what got him past Chris DeMarco. And even though he, he struggled a bit and had, you know, I think a very nervous round on Sunday, overcame it and got it done with that incredible uh, finish where he, he bogeyed the last two holes and then somehow, uh, you know, found something between the sign or finishing this round and getting to the first tee for the playoff, or excuse me, the 18th tee for the playoff and hit two perfect shots and made a 15 footer to win it. Um, Jordan, so I, I give Tiger two actually in this and then Jordan Spieth's first round in 64 just got him off to a great start. He, he ended up breaking the 36 hole record with that. And, and Jordan was showing us the artistry with the short game and he was still driving it well. And I'll just conclude and let you get back to, you know, I think in 2018, when he almost put, he started seven behind, excuse me, nine behind uh, Patrick Reed, and he was nine under through 16 holes. It was going to be maybe the greatest round ever played. Part mm-hmm. 17, he hit the branch on 18, made bogey. A birdie would have probably tied Reed. He was playing well ahead of him. But I often think about that drive on 18 and if it stays in the memory for him as an opportunity lost, but also one where he may have lost some confidence with his driver, because that was a big moment. Um, but, but Jordan Spieth, you know, before all this happened to him, he owned the Masters almost like Jack and Tiger did. Agreed. No question about it. It fit him perfectly. What do you think? You got some more rounds that you want to talk about? <laughs> well, I could, uh, I could go on and on and on. Um, but, you know, um, you know, Faldo's 65 in 1989 um, yes, was a I, I on yep. Sunday, and he went on to win in the playoff. Uh, Greg Norman's opening round in 1986 to shoot 63, which was at that point, um, or excuse me, in 1996, uh, his first round of 63 um, was, you know, extraordinary. But uh but, yeah, I think we about covered the best rounds. I mean, when let you start me, Let me just touch on one round, which is Faldo in 1996. It was only a 67, so relative to the other scores, higher. But I thought it was the most surgical, most precise round, given the circumstances, because he could not make a mistake. You know, Greg had the six-stroke lead, and Nick didn't – oh, I think he made one bogey. But it was just no bogey. Excuse me, five birdies. And there was a moment on 13 when he had taken the lead for the first time, and double bogey 12 hitting in the water suddenly Nick led by two and he stood over that second shot on 13 deciding between a five wood and a two iron and it was a side hill lie he 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 took at least three four minutes when he hit the two iron that may have been the shot of his life it was everything he practiced for to be able to hit a long iron under pressure to a heavily guarded green when he just absolutely had to do it and he did it I think He's more satisfied with that shot and the way that he handled that moment than any in his career. And of course, he didn't have many more great moments after that, but it was a culmination of all that work. And I, I thought it was just a master class in getting it done in the clutch. And I think it probably was very discouraging to Greg because, you know, Greg was already on the ropes, but Nick did not let him up for one minute. Well, I mean, I think that uh, that shot is is what chairman Ridley had in mind last year when he was talking about the momentous decision, because there Nick was debating about, you know, who knows, maybe he was debating to lay up as well, but he was toggling back and forth between a fairway wood and a long iron. And then because he decided to go with a long iron, I'm sure it'd been the case if he'd gone with a fairway wood as well, 
he gave a wide berth to the whole location, which was tucked way over on the right. So it was a great long iron shot, much like Hogan's shot in the final round. Marion was a great long Marion. iron shot. Not because it was stuff or that it was close. It was just that the hardest clubs to hit are long irons off tight lies uh, with major championships hanging in the balance. And um, you add to that the uh, the water that was – or the creek that was certainly in play there at 13, and that's – that's exactly what the uh, the founders had in mind when they designed the hole. They just couldn't have imagined players would come along, and equipment would come along such that, uh, well, now the uh, the momentous shots come more out of the trees yeah. than they do from the fairway. And, and along those lines, I think of Phil Mickelson's shot from uh, trees in 2013, um, or excuse me, 2010, um, you know, that's that's the unfortunate thing is that, you know, they're shorter shots, but I would argue that they're usually out of the trees these days. Well said, Randall. And, you know, let's switch gears again. And and perhaps um, you'd like to uh, address, you know, the controversy and the and the whole issue that was brought up in your Golf Week interview that um, you took a stance that certainly drew some fire. But uh, I know that everything you say has a lot of depth and I wondered if you'd like to, uh, you know, revisit that at all and, and, and talk a little bit more about what's happened since the article ran. Well, sure. I mean, you know, there was a phrase that I used that I wish I could have tackled myself before I used it. And I, I certainly had never used it before. And it, it, it turned, um, you know, what I think would have been a mild controversy into something that was sort of flammable and, you know, it was used in the headlines. So um, that phrase, uh, notwithstanding, I would say that, other than that, there was a willful misreading of that Q&A. My point was, is that the uh, PGA of America, and I've made this point numerous times, I've written about it, talked about it, um, gone on air uh, and done numerous shows, that the PGA of America uh, and the teachers of the PGA of America are the soul of the game. When you start thinking about Harvey Pennick or Eddie Marins, Randy Smith or Sandy LeBeau or Petty Kirk Bell or Bob Toskey, on and on and on. And they are the greatest link between um, the beginner and the captured golfer. I've said that innumerable times. My point was, is that teaching has been improved at the, I say, most notable level on the PGA Tour. Um, by the internet. I don't think that's any great insight. Uh, it seems obvious to me that some bad ideas in teaching, which I said were not maliciously intended, but no less pernicious uh, in their uh, popularity. And those ideas were a centered head, an early set of the wrists, um, and a restricted term. And I think those ideas died a pretty quick death because of the peer review that is now available through the various social media outlets and the internet and YouTube. And beyond that, I said that, uh, and I believe this to be the case, the top 50, top 100 teachers, whatever you want to say, um, when it is judged subjectively, when it could clearly be judged objectively, it will be an inherently flawed system. Now, there were some people that took offense to that, and those people are probably rightly taking offense to it because they occupy a position amongst those in the top 50 or top 100, and they quite like their subjectively viewed position. But who knows? As, as I have said, I would like to know who the greatest teacher in the country is. I'd really like to know that. It might be, you know, some 75-year-old uh, woman uh, teaching off of mats in Nebraska. It, it might be a 22-year-old young uh 
you know, just newly into the PGA of America um, uh, person in, in Wyoming um, who's having the greatest success. But we won't know until they start using objective criteria uh, to judge uh, the best teachers. Now, I was uh, quite happy to find out that the PGA of America is going to do exactly that this summer. They're going to, uh, as I talked to Susie Whaley, the CEO or the president, I should say, of the PGA of America. She told me that that's exactly what's going to happen, that they are going to, for the first time ever, use some objective measurement to sort of find who their very best teachers are. I think golf will be better off for that, and so will teaching. Uh, and that's, that's you know, pretty much all I have to say about that Q&A. Let me ask you this, though. What, what would you say about the, uh, the art of teaching in terms of conveying the message. In other words, let's assume for the, for the moment that everybody had the right information. Would there still be a skill that some would be better at? And would that be a criteria for judging who the best teacher is? Absolutely. I, I think being able to reduce from the most complicated to the easiest to incorporate is the essence of great teaching. And I've used, I've shared this anecdote in the past, but um, I would go watch Harvey Pennick teach. And one day after a lesson, he asked me what I thought of the student. And I named four or five things that I thought the student was doing wrong and, and asked him why he chose to just raise the player's hands. And he said, well, I, in raising the player's hands, um, his grip got uh, better because it was too strong his takeaway got better and his posture got better. And he said, I try to think of the one thing that will affect the most in my teaching. And that, that to me is the essence of teaching is to make it simple for the student. And also, and, and this one might be a little bit harder uh, from a metric standpoint to judge. So I'm okay if there's a subjective measurement of teachers, as long as there's also an objective measurement of teachers. But um, the joy that you bring to the game of golf or your help, um, uh, a, a person who's new to the game of golf or who's been playing it for a long time, the, just the joy that you bring to the game of golf. And of course that can be measured in the number of players that pick up the game at your club that decide to stick it out and get past that difficult aspect of, of beginning the game. So uh, yeah, there's lots of nuances to teaching and when, and look at the top of these lists is Butch Harmon and Pete Count. Okay. I don't have any problem with those <laughs> teachers being at the top of these lists. I think it's ironic that these are the teachers that say the least. Um, they, 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 they don't say much. They reduce it down to its, its simplest form. And I think that's part of the reason why they're heralded as such great teachers. And they've had such tremendous success um, with the best players. Um, and you know, while I see some of these teachers that I talked about have had success, um, there are also a lot of players who worked with them who are no longer playing the game. And I, I think, uh, um, at the very least, the goal of a teacher should be to do no harm. And, and Butch and, and Pete Cowan seem to do that better than anybody. But if, Great. but if we have objective measurements, we'd know for sure. Well explained. Appreciate it. Now, we got the Masters uh, that we just talked about. It's going to be the last major this year. Certainly, Tiger Woods' victory was the most inspirational moment of 2019. Um, Perhaps you can revisit why, in your view, it was. Uh, maybe I'm being uh, presumptuous to say that, but I think that's kind of the consensus. But I wonder, projecting forward, for what for, for different reasons apart from any individual player, do you expect the Masters of November to be inspirational? 
Yeah, I, I do. You know, I, I think Rory McIlroy will have a chance to complete uh, the career grand slam there. And Rory is playing some of, if not the best golf of his career. So from that perspective, globally, it'll be inspirational. You talk about the players that are dealing with injury will have more time to heal up. It's not just Tiger Woods I'm talking about. It's also Brooks Kepka. Uh, Brooks Kepka, uh, you know, was slightly hobbled and it looked like his play was sort of put off because of that. So Brooks will have more time to heal up. Jason Day will have more time to heal up. Louis Oosthuizen, who's dealing with a shoulder issue, will have more time to heal up. So, you know, there's a good chance that, uh, you know, some of the most compelling players, not just in the United States, but from a global perspective, will show up there uh, in a better place physically. And yes, the fact that Tiger Woods uh, has a better chance to show up there physically ready to play and who knows maybe he plays like he did at the Zozo in late 2019 you know where he had plenty of time to heal up after um you know the the flurry to finished to the 2019 season so you know maybe Tiger gets 16 I I I I don't I think I learned my lesson that ever uh, of ever counting him out Uh, but there are a lot of reasons that made 2019 at least in my view the greatest comeback in the history of the game yeah, well, I think the scene alone will be inspirational just because we'll know that the lengths that golf went to and that the Masters went to to play this thing in November in an almost incongruous setting. And just I think that uniqueness is going to give this this Masters a special significance because the world's going to invite something like this. Uh, there's going to be other, hopefully, other sports, but there's something special about the Masters. And I do think it'll be a wonderful way to end 2020 in terms of with some hopefulness and uh, a sense that uh, better days are ahead. So thanks again, Brandel, and thanks for all our listeners, and we'll talk to you again soon.